Hey, so we've been in the, this series called Authentic for a few weeks. This is week number seven, and it's going to be the last week. I could talk about this topic literally for months, because as I was sitting through the planning of this topic, I was just more and more ideas came up with what it means to be an authentic person and what it means to be a fake person, what it means to be really the person I'm supposed to be and what it means to be a fraudulent or, or some sort of counterfeit version of who I was designed to be. Because see, uh, authenticity is a buzzword in our world today. That means it's got high value but low meaning. Lots of people like it. No one knows what it means. They just throw the word around. I'm just being authentic. And we identified for all of these weeks that authenticity has a problem inherent with it. If authenticity means that you're the same person on the outside as you are on the inside, if it means that everybody around you gets to see the real raw you, then it also means the worst parts of you affect the most people. Because those are the parts that bubble up to the surface. Those are the parts that leak out. And, and when you have temper and you, you, cost, you, you, you toss out that bad word or, or that negative thought and the other person hears it and then you respond, well, I, it's just me. I just have a temper. It's just who I am. That doesn't fly. We live in a world that doesn't want that version of authenticity even though that's the version they seem to talk about all the time. And so the metaphor that we've adopted for this is that authenticity is when a thing has been touched primarily by its designer. And counterfeit is when someone designed something but someone else copied it. And someone else got their hands all over it. And someone else may have messed it up. It could look very similar to the original. But it's the wrong hands that touched it. And so our metaphor is that authentic is when the author's hands have touched it. And the author's hands are represented on it. And counterfeit or fraudulent is when other hands have gotten on it. And I've tried to affirm to you for the last six weeks and again today that you are a masterpiece. You are designed by the creator of the universe. His fingerprints are on you and he wants you to walk in that. He has made you in a very special way to be a unique person among all the other creatures that he has made to serve him in a very unique way and he has put his fingerprint of mastery on you. And so today, what I want to do is I want to close out our time by not talking about some of the really practical stuff we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. But I'm going to talk about something that is the most practical of any lesson that you will ever learn. Because it's a practical lesson about something that is really, really deep inside. I want to just give it to you this way at the very beginning. So write these things down if you're taking notes. I'm authentic when I am where I belong. And I belong to God. I'm authentic when I am where I belong. A lot of us live our lives with a mentality and a focus on getting the next thing done, on accomplishing the next goal, or just finishing this task so I can go home and get some rest. There are all sorts of ways in our lives that we shape it, but so much of our lives are focused on just the things that we are doing. And yet there is a God who says, above all else, I just want you to be with me. I want you to belong to me. 
I want to share with you some verses here that I think are really important to this. Uh, We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. You know, we've spent a lot of time in the book of Genesis over this, this series of messages. Every single Sunday, I've gone back into Genesis to pull out something about the way God designed us, something about the way God created us, and then we've played off of that to understand what does the rest of the Bible teach about that. And today, I'm not going to tell you anything about how God designed us from this particular passage. I'm going to talk about this passage from a totally different perspective. And hopefully, as we make our way through this morning, you will have your heart touched a little bit by the truth of what God is doing in this world and what he has designed you for. Let's take a look at it. It's Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to start with just this first verse. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Let's pause there for just a moment. You see, uh, what's going on here is that the serpent, we know later from the rest of the Bible, who is being somehow controlled by Satan himself. We don't exactly know how all that worked. We just know the serpent here is somehow an embodiment or a representation of Satan in some fashion. And he's talking to the woman, and we know from the rest of the story, the man is standing right next to her, but for whatever reason, the serpent chooses to talk to the woman. And so he says to the woman this phrase, did God really say? Now, In order for us to even address that, you need to know what God had said. And so let me just walk you through mentally what God has done up until Genesis 3 in the first couple of chapters. Back in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a sky in the the air above. And God said, let there be fish. And God said, let there be animals. And God said, let there be plants. And then God said, let us make make human beings. It's when he made human beings that he got his hands dirty. And then he made the first human being, Adam. And he put Adam in a garden that God made for Adam. And then he brought all the animals to Adam to see if any of these animals could be an appropriate companion for Adam. And not even a dog made by God could be the perfect companion for the first man who ever lived. Instead, God put Adam into a sleep, took a rib, made a woman, brought the woman to Adam, and the man said, whoa, man, and named her woman, and then God had given him the perfect gift. So here is God, and by his word, he creates the universe and the world, and then as a gift, he makes this man, gives him life, and gives him everything he could possibly need, and he says to the man, you are free to eat from any of the trees in the garden." But of the tree in the center of the garden, if you eat from it, you're going to die. God didn't specifically say, Adam, I don't want you to eat from the tree in the middle. He didn't say that. What he said was, the tree in the middle will kill you. And God had done an amazing thing. After giving the first human beings, all these amazing gifts of life and the environment around them and the garden and the trees. He gave them one final gift, which was the ability to have agency, to make a choice. God doesn't say, Adam, don't eat from this one particular tree just because I said so. No, he says, Adam, don't eat from the tree because it will kill you. Why would God be so concerned about whether or not Adam dies? 
After all, God could just make another one. Why would God be so concerned over this thing that he has made? This insignificant, tiny little bug on a little blue ball in the far reaches of a spiral galaxy in the middle of nowhere. Why would God care if this guy eats the wrong thing and dies? But he gives the fellow a gift of agency. And then the serpent comes and he says, Did God really say you can't have anything you like? He's just playing on the woman who might already have a sense that God has restricted something from them. In the midst of, we do this all the time. We feel this incredible freedom. God has given us this incredible world. And yet we always find the thing that we shouldn't have and we go after that. It's the forbidden fruit syndrome, literally. And we have this idea that we want to go after that one thing. And so maybe, maybe Satan here in this moment, he just recognizes that the woman has a little glimmer of a sense that God has forbidden something good. And so then Satan says to her, did God prevent you from eating anything? And the woman replies, this is what she says, let's put it up. The woman says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. She doesn't say from all the trees. She is not as generous as God was. She is just sort of a little bit more limited. And then, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. That's not what God said. God did not say you can't touch it. God said the fruit will kill you. Don't eat it. He didn't say don't touch it. She added that. Or maybe Adam added it to her when he told her because we know the story God told it to Adam. There's never a picture in the text where God says it directly to Eve. So maybe it's Adam's fault that he gave her the wrong information. Maybe she made up something new. But let's keep reading. The the serpent then says to her, you will not certainly die. Just a direct denial of God's claims. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's an outright lie. You will not die. Instead, you'll be like God. God is holding something good back from you that he could keep it for himself. That is the lie. It is the lie that we always believe, that somehow God is holding something back from us, somehow he is keeping something from us, and if God would just get his nose out of my business, I could have some fun. That's the way we feel. That's the way the serpent is trying to portray it to this woman. And then everything changes in her heart. Take a look at this next phrase. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, who told her it was good? Actually, the serpent didn't say it was good. God didn't say it was good. God said it'll kill you. The woman makes the first use of the word good that doesn't come from the mouth of God in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter one, God makes something. He calls it good. He makes another thing. He calls it good. He makes another thing. He calls it good. He makes human beings. He calls them very good. But now this is the first time someone other than God has labeled something as good. And it's the woman who says, I'm going to decide for myself what's good. I think that tree is good. That fruit is good. And so it's also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was standing right next to her. And he ate it. Let's keep going. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You need to realize this is the first moment in human history where authenticity goes out the window. You see, before this moment, we were told that they were naked and unashamed. 
They were naked, completely vulnerable, completely exposed, but God in heaven was caring for them by building them a perfect garden. God in heaven was caring for them by putting the two of them together in such a way that there was no sense of judgment, there was no sense of comparison, there was no sense of I'm better than you, and yet here at this very moment, something happened. At the moment they committed this first sin, something happened where authenticity flies out the window and now they must cover themselves. And we have been in the world's biggest cover-up ever since. Every one of us wakes up in the morning and we cover ourselves up physically and we cover ourselves up mentally so that when people talk to us during the day, they get the version of ourselves that we want them to see. Because none of us can be that authentic. And here in this moment, authenticity dies. And they cover themselves up. But keep going. See what happens next. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Quick question for you. How do you know that the sound you hear is God? I mean, doesn't it just sound like rustling of leaves or something along those lines? How do you know the sound you're hearing is God unless he has done it before? Unless he has done it regularly. This is my speculation, but I think this must mean that God would regularly walk through the garden somehow. My imagining of that is that Jesus, in a somewhat physical body, would literally walk around in the garden. And that Adam and Eve experienced that, and they knew it. And they could understand the sound was related to the one they knew. But look at the end. They hid Again, authenticity is out the window. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The very things God had given them for their freedom, they are now hiding behind because of their shame. And here's the last line that should almost break your heart. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, let's just be honest with each other. Do you think God didn't know where they were? He's... He's God for crying out loud. He knew where they were. They're hiding behind that very tree. He can see their feet. <laughs> and he didn't even need to see their feet. He, can just, he just knows. He's the God of the universe. He's omnipotent, omnipresent. He knows everything. He knows where they are. But he asks, where are you? You see, those three little words are the sounds of a broken heart. Because God was terribly concerned that these first creatures would not do the thing that would lead to their separation from him. And now they have done it. And he comes and he says, where are you? When I was younger, I was at a, a camp thing for a church event. And Part of the camp thing, towards the end of the week, we went to a water park. And water parks, I, I love. I think they're great. I know the technique for how to go down a water slide with extreme speed, um, and I'm very good at it. But I was younger then, and I hadn't been fully experienced, and so I was experimenting. There was just one problem. Um, I never made friends at camp. 
And I don't know exactly why. Maybe it was because no one liked me. Maybe it was because I didn't like them. I don't know. But I never really made friends at camp. And so when we went to the water park, I didn't have a buddy. There was no buddy system that they enforced. And I didn't have a buddy. My sister was on the same trip. And I figured if I really needed something, I could just go find her, track her down. And she had some friends. And they were kind of mostly trustworthy people. And so I was okay with that. So anyway, I'm like 13 years old, something along those lines. And we're going through the water park and I'm by myself and I'm having the time of my life. It's one of the greatest days of my life because no one is bothering me and our church group is basically rented out this place and so it's basically just our church group people and so I'm having so much fun. It's incredible until late in the afternoon I get a little rumbly in my tumbly and it's not the hungry kind, it's the I'm not feeling so good kind and so I end up spending a significant amount of the afternoon in the restroom of the establishment. And while I'm in there trying to make sure everything with me is kosher and taken care of, eventually I start feeling better. And so I get myself pulled back together. I wash up and I come back out. And I notice the lines are significantly shorter at all of the rides. And so I'm having even more fun. So I'm going back on the rides. And I'm just experiencing the greatest time of my life until like the second time I climb the staircase to get to the top of this one water slide and the person at the top of the water slide says, okay, dude, this is your last time. I said, what do you mean it's my last time? He said, we're closed. And I said, what do you mean you're closed? He said, we're closed. I'll let you go down this one last time. And I said, okay. So I slide down. I go over to the locker. I get my towel and dry myself off and get the rest of my stuff. And I look around and there's no one else there. So I go to the front gate and the four buses that had brought us there are not there. Because apparently, I learned this later, the speaker inside the bathroom is broken when they announced, everybody, we are getting on the bus and we are leaving, so come. And because there were four buses, my sister thought I was on one of the other buses, and so they all just left, and I was the last person there, me, and I kid you not, security guard dude. I have no idea what his name was, but I went to him, and I'm like, what do I do now? And he said to me, do you know any phone numbers? No, I'm at camp. This is, but this is like a long time before cell phones were a thing. This is a long time ago. I am completely and utterly abandoned. And so I sit on the curb of the parking lot just wondering what's going to happen. Eventually, security man dude comes out to give me some consolation and homeless man dude also comes over and the three of us are sitting together on, the, on just the, the, the ledge there on the curb wondering what do we do next? And I'm like, this is just, someone should be filming this. But I tell you what, I felt completely abandoned in that moment. And I want to let you know, I believe God felt the same way when he came to the garden and the two people he loved most in the world were gone. Listen, I know you've, I know you've felt that before. Maybe as a kid you had a stuffed animal you left behind at a hotel, a blanket that you lost. And you have that sense. I have lost the thing that I loved. 
And whether it's you feel abandoned by the other person who's walked away, or whether it's you feel like you have lost the thing that you have loved, you are in that moment in the place where God was when he said those three little words, where are you? See, the thing that we need to know more than anything is that God created us most of all for himself. He, he built us for himself that his love would have something to be poured on. Let me show you a couple other verses. This is from Exodus chapter 3. Um, n- not chapter 3, what is it? I, f- I forget. Uh, 33. Exodus chapter 33. Uh, this is God saying to Moses, tell the Israelites you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. You read that and you hear the words of someone who's mad, someone who's got wrath going on. You need to know why. See, this is that moment right after Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and then he comes back down off the mountain, and the people at the bottom are worshiping a golden calf. And God is upset with them, and Moses is upset with them, and Moses breaks the Ten Commandments. They're now ruined, and Moses is like, listen, you guys don't want to pay attention to God? Fine, I'll go and fix your problem with this idol, and then I'm going to go back to God and see what I can do to fix this mess. And when Moses goes back to God, God says, listen, I can't go with you or I might destroy them. Now, what does that mean? That means I love you too much to stay with you. Because if I'm with you, my anger might get the best of me and I might just destroy you on the way and I love you too much to be this close to you. Because you're hurting me that badly. Keep reading because then Moses pleads with God. And Moses says, God, you have to be with us. And God then says, okay, bring me some new tablets. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then look at this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses. And this phrase that we're about to read is called God's name. Yes, his name is Yahweh, which we transliterate with L-O-R-D. We use those words, uh, that letter combination, to refer to God's name in the Old Testament, the I am, Yahweh. But what comes next is the longest name you have ever heard, and it is a name that God chooses for himself because he needs all of these words. It says this, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. There is a God who would speak his name and talk about punishment with reluctance in his tone of voice. I'm loving, loving, loving. I'm forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. I'm compassionate, compassionate, compassionate. Yet, righteousness has to be done. This is a God who loves. I want you to write it down this way. We were made to be loved. 
I'm not just saying we were made so that we would experience another human being's love. We talked about relationships a few weeks ago. What I'm saying is we were made by God for him to love us. We were made by God for him to have something to love beyond the beautiful love that existed within the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity past. Yes, that's an amazing kind of love, but there's a different kind of love that God had inside him that he wanted to give, and so he needed to create objects for his love. And he made human beings, and they couldn't be robots. They couldn't just be angels. They couldn't just be random, you know, just going along with the flow of what God wanted. They had to have agency. They had to be people who were capable of walking away so that God could get the pleasure of them walking towards. And you were made to be loved by God. Let me just share with you a few more verses. John 3.16, most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were hiding behind the tree, wearing our little fig leaves and trying to avoid God, God came down to walk among us, to experience our sin by even experiencing our death. To bear it, to carry it into the grave, and to leave it behind when he rose again. Look at this next one from 1 John. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We are strangers in this world because we are children of God because God has loved us. Or look at this last one from 1 John. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what communion is all about. Communion is not one more moment for us to say to God, yes, God, I receive this whole Jesus thing. Communion is that moment for us to experience in a vital, vibrant, real way that you are loved, that I am loved. There's perhaps no greater phrase that you can have on your heart in your mind, in your eyes in front of you, than this. I am loved. I was made by the most powerful being in the universe specifically because he wanted to love. I want to give you just a few things to try to take this home. Uh, Four more verses we're going to look at. And four simple things that I think you can do to try to embrace the fact that you are loved by God, you belong to him. Here they are. Number one, it's from John chapter one, verse 12. It says this, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There is something that we need to do. In order for us to embrace this childness that we have with God, in order for us to embrace the adoption that he is offering to us, we need to be people who receive it. We need to receive his love. 
It's not just something to know about God's love. It's something you need to receive. You need to say, God, thank you for giving me your love and receive it into your life. Number two, take a look at this verse. It says, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Why am I bringing this up? (laughs) Because you need to know Jesus. Jesus, he's the guy who raises people from the dead. He's the guy who heals people of leprosy and blindness. Jesus is the guy who predicts his own death and resurrection and then pulls it off. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus, what he does is he wakes up really early when no one else is up. And he goes off while it's still dark because he really just wants to spend some time with his father. You see, if, if, Jesus, if Jesus needs to spend time by himself alone with God, how much more do we? I, I said you needed to receive God's love, but you also need to receive his love again. And when I say again, I mean again and again. Again and again and again and again. I, I mean like every day again. You need to wake up in the morning and receive his love. You need to eat your lunch in the afternoon and receive his love. You need to go to bed at night and receive his love. And all the times in between, you need to repeatedly say, God, I receive your love. You spend some time with him. You read his word. Because why? Because his word is his love letter to us. And so I'm going to read his word so that I can hear what he has to say to me because I love him and he loves me. The way Solomon would put it, I'm my beloved and he is mine. We are are together in this journey. He has made me for this, and so I will spend time with him. I'm going to receive his love once. I'm going to say, thank you, Jesus. I receive your love. I receive your forgiveness. If you've never done that before, today is your day. But if you've done it before, today is still your day. Receive his love all over again, all over again, and again, and again. Look at this next verse. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, here's the deal. If you've received his love, God has adopted you. If God has adopted you, then he is not only your creator, He is not only your sustainer. He is not only the sovereign king over the universe you included. He is also your dad. And in every one of those cases, he's in charge. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. I I need to let myself be owned. I, I need to let myself be owned. I don't own myself I am owned by God. And now, take a look at this last verse. Jesus says to his disciples in Acts, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's the last thing I want you to write down. Be a witness. How does that fit in? Because I'm owned. But I'm owned by someone who says, my arms are open to everyone. I'm owned by someone who says, I love you from now into eternity. I'm owned by someone who says, I gave you life and I will not 
take it away. You will keep it for eternity with me. All you need to do is receive my love. You are owned by a God who loves. And if you think the people around you don't need that, then you're missing something. Jesus himself said, listen, this is now your job. You need to be my witnesses, not witnesses of doctrine. You don't need to knock on your neighbor's door and say, can I tell you the five steps you need to do in order to get saved today? You don't need to do that. You don't need to say, hey, listen, have you heard about hell? Did you know you're going to it? I can keep you from there, but you need to give me five minutes of your time and a prayer. No, you don't need to be witnesses to the doctrine. That's not what Jesus says. You're supposed to be witnesses of Jesus. And who was he? He was the one who loved. Do you think the people in your life, the people in your sphere of influence, the people in your workplace, the people in your neighborhood, do you think they were made to be loved? Do you think there is a God who loves them? And do you think they might want love? If you think those three things are true, someone in their life has to put them together. And Jesus would say, that's you, and it's me. We are his witnesses. And so the way we end this authenticity series is I want to affirm to you that I am not asking you to be someone else. I'm not asking you to pretend that someone else's life is your life. What I'm asking you to do is to be you. But to be you all the way. Whatever God has made you to be, whatever God has made you to do, wherever God has made you to rest in his presence, whatever God has done in your life, I want you to just be it all in, all out. And I tell you what, as a church, we need that. We need to be all in together. Because if we are all in together, then the world around us just might possibly realize that there's a God who loves them. And if they do, their lives will be changed, their lives will be better, and we will experience the blessing of God even here in this place. I want to invite you to take your first steps in that direction right now by spending some time in reflection to pray, to ask for God to speak into your heart what he needs to speak into your heart, to prepare your heart for our time of communion. And then during our final song, just as you feel ready, please come forward, partake of communion, bring an offering to your heavenly Father who loves you so much he is trustworthy to take care of you. And let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.